welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 14, recorded March 12th, 2019. Elizabeth Warren votes to break up the Cloud Pod. Good afternoon, guys. Hope you had a great week. And of course, as tradition, Peter, what are we drinking? Oh, man. I had to just grab something from the fridge and I ended up with a uh, Pellegrino Arnciata. So nothing too fun today. Uh, that's too bad. I made some effort this week. I have a Brooklady single malt. Ooh. Ooh. Wow. Oh, yeah. It's very fancy. It's my gift for putting up with my uh, my in-laws for three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. Uh, I just grabbed a uh, whiskey from the bar at the hotel I'm staying at tonight. So that's uh, just a nice Macallan here. So I'm just going to go with that. We have a guest here tonight, Matt Adorjan, uh, who is the author of this week's Cool Tools, which we'll get uh, to later this evening. Uh, but are you drinking anything uh, enjoyable this evening? I just have a LaCroix right now. Nothing too exciting. Grapefruit, but that's all. Ah, nice, nice. Maybe you want to introduce yourself to our, our avid listeners. Sure. So, uh, uh, like you said, my name is Matt. Uh, day job at uh, work at a financial services firm called Biosni Asset Management, um, leading our uh, cloud engineering group, basically delivering AWS services um, to the organization. Um, previously worked at places like McDonald's uh, Corporate, uh, U.S. Foods, PwC, all focusing on AWS. On the side, though, uh, launched the Cloud Ping tool, looking at AWS latency, which we'll talk about later. Um, also like to write articles based on different AWS topics or solutions, things like that. Um, most recently uh, collaborated um, with the AWS Route 53 team on a uh, blog post about the Route 53 resolver um, before it launched back in November. So that was kind of cool. So. That's, uh, that's a bit about me. That's awesome. Jonathan actually is uh, attempting to get the Route 53 resolver to work, so maybe he can pick your brain later. I heard the uh, the waiting for Terraform finally finally launched. Yeah, that's right. The rules didn't make it for the most recent release, unfortunately. That's too bad. All right. Well, we don't have any follow-up this week, so let's jump into the new topics. Uh, so Google has announced uh, with a very catchy uh, titled article, How Does Your Cloud Storage Grow with a Scalable Plan and a Price Drop? Uh, so today they basically have highlighted that the one constant today for all businesses is the growing data storage of their business. Uh, and they say the biggest issue with that, of course, is that it's unpredictable and makes your finance people very unhappy. So the new pricing that they released uh, basically allows you to commit to a set amount of storage, let's say $10,000 per month of data storage. And if you use uh, up to that amount every month, you'll get no charge. And if you go over that amount, uh, they will actually hold back charging you until the end of the 12-month period. And if that overage does not exceed 30% of your commitment, then you will be able to basically set up a new 12-month commitment at the new peak level and continue on your way. Um, or if it's over 30%, you pay the difference. And Or if you decide, hey, we're off of Google Cloud, um, you just pay for your overage. Uh, this is designed to give you much more predictable costs and allow you to basically simplify your storage plan. This also included a 42% price cut of the cold line class of storage, uh, which is a nice savings for those using Glacier or cold line storage. I think it's cool. You know, one of the first things when we were helping companies years ago move to the cloud was getting the, uh, the finance team on board with the fact that they didn't know what the bill was going to be at the end of the month. 
And I think that's still been an issue with procurement, just wanting to know how much they're going to spend, be able to budget for it. So this is like making uh, making the cloud backward compatible. Anything that makes it easier for enterprises to be able to say, you know, we want to use these new flexible, cool cloud tools, whether it's storage or whatever, but here's our commitment. We know what we're going to pay. You know, people can do their budgets during budget season. They know what it's going to look like. I mean, anything like this where you can commit is great. And then everybody's happy. <laughs> I, I was wondering how happy finance people actually would be, because if you know you have an overage, potentially do they have to start accruing for that in their books? And so, you know, while it's not a cash commitment, it is still an accrual activity. So it does simplify part of the problem, but it doesn't solve it completely. But again, if you can wipe that accrual out at the end of the 12 month period, that's not too bad. I feel sorry for the guys who come in at 31 percent and instead of paying the 1 percent more than the people who came in at 13 get it uh, discounted, they, they have to pay the full 31 percent. Well, I mean, I'm sure that there's uh, abilities to talk to your sales rep at Google. Oh, they don't have salespeople. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah. There's definitely a penalty if you're over in that little bit of a window there, but you know, it's still a nice to have that predictability. So we'll see. Also in storage, Azure has released uh, what they're calling the Premium Blob Storage, which is now in public preview. Uh, this is a new performance tier in the Azure Blob Storage uh, and complements their existing Hot Cool and Archive tiers. Uh, they say this is ideal for workloads with high transaction rates or requires very fast access times. Uh, and their examples were IoT, telemetry, AI, or scenarios with human editing, like video or audio, uh, et cetera. On average, it's a 10x lower than standard-based latency and 40 times lower than 99th percentile of their typical storage. Uh, and overall, you know, it's much more expensive <laughs> than your traditional blob storage. Uh, but you know, is this going to be a savings for you guys? I kind of wonder why they just didn't fix their original product. It's not a great sales pitch. <laughs> that was my big fight with this. Like when I read it, I was like, so you're telling me that your blob storage is completely broken and your solution to it is you made a better, more performant. And instead of giving me the benefit of that, uh, you basically said, no, no, we'll make it a new tier to make your storage complexity even worse. And now I have to now manage all of this data blob object storage across now four different classes of storage. It doesn't make my life easier and it makes me grumpy. Yeah, I mean, imagine the the other press release for the regular blob storage now. It's going to say, on average, this is 10 times slower latency and and, and 40 times. <laughs> I know, it's, it's, um, it's a bad move. They should just have fixed what they already have. It's very expensive too. So this is the data storage. Um, you know, it's about 0.75 cents per gig. Um, but then they start charging you a bunch of fees for each transaction type. So, uh, you know, number of write operations, number of read operations. And, and on average, it's a factor of at least two hundredths of a cent more expensive for this hot storage versus others. Um, it, it can add up pretty quickly. Would it replace workloads that are using block storage, though, which is obviously at a higher price point than object storage? Cause that would I don't be know, because I, I, I don't know that you can mount blob storage as like a file disk-based storage object in Azure. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, you probably, yeah, I'm certain, I would, I would hope that you can't. But um, I just meant from a performance standpoint. Yeah, I guess, I mean, what, what application, you know, in video editing or in, you know, these other use cases has that ability to access blob storage in that method. So I, I don't know. It's a little bit weird. Zero, <laughs> yeah, zero, zero, zero legacy applications. <laughs> Exactly. Maybe that's what we should do. Do what? Build applications that aren't legacy? Build applications that aren't legacy. Google, at the end of last week, and again, last week was RSA week, 
has released several new security tools and services for the Google Cloud. Um, two of them are pretty pedestrian. The first one is a DDoS and targeted attack-based protection with Cloud Armor, which is very similar to you know DDoS uh, and WAF services you're familiar to with Azure and AWS. Uh, and then, of course, they, they announced an HSM solution, which allows you to do FIPS 140-2 Level 3 um, HSM compliance in the cloud. But the third one actually caught my eye because it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, so they're calling it the Web Risk API. And this is a simple API call that client applications can use to check URLs against Google's list of unsafe, unsafe web op- uh, resources, including social engineering sites, malware, and any other hostile sites that you can think of. Uh, this is the same system that powers SafeSearch in the Chrome browser. And so this is uh, pretty interesting. I make this available to everybody as an API now for your Google apps. Apart from a browser, which is you know, what somebody is using to visit these sites, who else really cares about um, this, this information? Like, how else are you going to come across these these unsafe sites and use them if you're not using Chrome or some other? Well, I mean, if you it? think about how many web services today, you know, do posts and do get requests against different API URLs, um, if they, you know, if somehow you can maybe subscribe uh, a webhook, for example, to a custom URL you can put into a web application, you necessarily don't want to subscribe it to a hostile a hostile API or hostile site. Um, so you can now put that into your site and say, hey, you're trying to connect your webhook of your sensitive data to this known bad actor on the internet. It's a nice web, it's a nice error message you can put into your site. Um, but you know, typically you're talking about a web resource in some kind. So it has to be a RESTful API or it has to be um, a web browser type use case. And I was thinking like this could be, you know, another source for some of these other tools that maybe you would have on the edge of your network or something like that. Just another point to kind of look at to validate URLs. Obviously, Google has a great um, kind of solution for this and it's safe safe search um, offering. So taking this and putting it as just another another check uh, checkbox in terms of what's on the edge of your network for things coming in and going out. Yeah, I could see making a like a squid plugin or something like that to right, to exactly. these filters. Yeah, but then my browser already does that. So, <laughs> well, right, right, exactly, exactly. Well, not not everyone's corporate policy allows them to use Chrome. So, you know, if you're still stuck in Internet Explorer, you could now use this with Squid and get the benefits. Wow. Even, even Microsoft wants you to use Chrome now. So, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> is it free or is it uh is, is it a paid service? I didn't see anything about pricing in there, but. You know, I, I didn't see anything about pricing in the announcement either, and I, I didn't do the homework to go to the next level and go look at the pricing API to see if it was there. Um, you know, as it's somewhat new, I imagine it may be still in early access, which is why there's no pricing in the press release. Now, moving to an area that I don't like to talk about on the podcast, uh, but is slightly political. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has put, put a bold plan together to break up big tech. And we're not going to talk about the politics of this, um, but I do want to talk about the concept of breaking up big tech. So her plan is basically that she would like to crack down on the tech industry, proposing a breakup of Amazon, Facebook, and Google. Um, She claims that big tech companies have too much power over the economy, our society, and our democracy. They have bulldozed competition, used our PI for profit, and tilted playing field against everyone else, hurting small businesses and stifling innovation. This is targeted at multiple tech companies, but Amazon would potentially be the biggest hit. Uh, And she wants to prevent tech companies from being able to participate on their own platforms as a marketplace. So, for example, this would be that Amazon Basics, which is one of their store brands, would not be allowed to be sold um, on Amazon.com as a competitor to other products on the marketplace. Uh, So, again, there's two parts to this. The first is, you know, basically 
not allowing you to use your own platform. And the second is also um, resolving what she's considering to be anti-competitive mergers. So this would be things like Amazon needing to divest of Whole Foods and Zappos.com, Facebook divesting WhatsApp and Instagram, for example, or Google um, dropping Waze and Nest or, or any others. So pretty bold uh, policy statement. And I'm, I'm more interested in like how does this even work? <laughs> It's really arbitrary. I mean, these so these these are definitely three big tech companies, and yeah, they have huge market shares. But you could say the same thing about the oil companies and about the way they've stifled innovation over the years too. But um, it's it seems like a total disincentive to any of these companies to to do any good work. I mean, people build platforms for their own uses in general. That's how Amazon built theirs. That's who Google built theirs. Um, I don't know. It's, it's clearly not going to work. There's no legal basis to do this. It would have to be a very slow transition. It'd have to be a, a changing of the laws around monopolies. The point of right, avoiding monopolies is prices going up, right? Goods getting priced at uh, a number where demand exceeds supply and, uh, and profits are maximized in that situation versus when there's multiple competitors, prices... Um, max profits are where demand equals supply. So, I mean, if you look at these, you know, I think one of the things you look at is, are prices going up? Or is that happening? Are these the areas where that is happening? And if it's not happening, then maybe it's not an area we should be focusing a whole lot of time on. Or maybe maybe the prices don't go up right now, but, but all of a sudden Amazon get 98% of the market share. And yeah, they can put prices up because no competitor can, can compete to that scale. I mean, I, I, but I guess the question I had when I read this was, you know, if I go to a grocery store and, you know, next to, you know, Toll House cookies is a, their generic store brand cookies, that's existed for, you know, decades now. And no one has, you know, that hasn't put, you know, Nestle out of business. So, you know, I think there is still people who always buy based on brand. And so having a you know generic brand in the same marketplace, there's people an alternative that you're willing to pay. You know, you don't want to pay for the brand, but you want the product. That, that doesn't seem like a bad trade-off. Um, so that's a little weird to me. But the bigger question is, does this really actually stifle innovation? You know, does Amazon.com sold books and then they you know, realize that they could open up their platform to other third-party sellers and allow them to now sell on the platform. Does that now mean Amazon can't sell books, which is what the company was designed to do? And then they go down the path and they're like, well, we're going to build out Amazon Web Services, which is a different platform that we're not going to build our Amazon.com on top of. But now can they not do that either? Like it, it just You see how it can start stifling innovation in a very, very rapid pace that would be worse for the internet in many ways than you know, allowing some of these things. Now, I, I agree there should probably be some more scrutiny over, you know, can Facebook buy a company like Instagram, especially now that everyone's saying I'm getting off Insta- off of Facebook, but then they just go to Instagram, which is still Facebook. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's just weird. The whole platform on a platform on a platform story of Amazon seems like a really bad precedent. And same thing with Salesforce.com, you know, do they not build the Force.com platform because then they're seen as being competitive with their own products? Like, it's so arbitrary and it's so weird to how you would, you know, differentiate them between what's a platform that's a technology platform versus a marketplace platform. The corporate lawyer is going to love it because so they break up these companies and we'll have Amazon Marketplace uh, and we'll have Amazon Web Services and we'll have Amazon Platform Services and effectively they'll they'll still have the same board members. All the money will still roll up to some umbrella company like Alphabet that did with Google and nothing changes. 
on the face of it, it looks like you're, making, you're taking a stand against against these big tech uh, companies and how they're ruining the economy and they're shutting down local stores and everything else. But effectively, nothing's going to change if you break them up because there will still be the same uh, entities doing the same deals with uh, with each other. Well, and, and actually it might make it worse because now they might get into raising prices because now they all the companies have to make revenue equally. You can't have one product taking a loss at the cost of the other. So now they have to charge for everything and it actually makes everything more expensive. Yeah. So if the, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the thought is um, innovation is being stifled, I think it's interesting that they picked the industry that has been innovating the fastest in the last 20 years and said that that's the area that we need to break up because innovation is being stifled. Doesn't make any sense. It's, it, it doesn't. And, and another reason that it, it's not being stifled is people are, people are um, building startups every day they're targeting specific industries, whether it's healthcare or whether it's, you know, uh, like the Waze or Nest or people like this, with the intention of being bought by a bigger company. And people will cash in on their, their equity when their company is bought. And that's, that's how people become self-made millionaires anymore. People innovate hard to be, to be uh, acquired by these large companies deliberately. It's certainly not going to stifle innovation. I'm in total agreement. I don't see how breaking um, these apart would help um, any kind of uh, creation of innovation anywhere, right? Like you have these economies of scale by having these large companies where you can bounce ideas off of people. You have such a diverse skill set um, alone within one organization that you can use. Um, yes, I think there are probably some PII and data things that could use um, or concerns that could use some scrutiny a little bit, but this whole like breaking apart, I just don't think anyone really wins in that situation. Yeah, I think fa Facebook stands separate than Amazon and Google in this conversation for me because I, right, I, absolutely. I think I think that what, what they're doing is is buying uh, buying users and and uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're aggregating the platform. They're going to have a single messaging platform They're they're not. Well, Google has kept ways distinct for years. It's been four or five years, and they're slowly now starting to migrate some of the ways data into the Google Maps for functionality. And so, I, I would hardly say that they've uh, stifled any innovation there either. Well, you know, I think the the bigger issue that I think she's maybe trying to tap into, but is missing the point on, is the the data privacy side of this, right? And Facebook being the most egregious and allowing their platform to be used by potentially hostile political actors. Like that's the bigger issue, and that's where I would like to see a candidate or somebody come up with some regulations around. You know, do we do GPDR in the United States? Do we do we come up with some other privacy legislation that makes sense? Um, and you know, in, in those cases where a company is violating privacy laws, maybe that does deserve a breakup in a monopolistic um, standpoint. But that that law doesn't exist today, and that's I think that's the key message here too: is that what she's proposing is is against the law. Like <laughs> you can't you can't do these things, but. It doesn't mean there shouldn't be something, but I, I think she's going too far. All right, moving on uh, to less political topics. <laughs> Phew, that was that was tense. <laughs> it, was, it was close. I, you know, our, our stance of not trying to talk about politics is uh, sometimes it's dangerous. Uh, Azure DevOps Server 2019 is now available. Uh, so initially, I thought this was just like an on-premise version of the Azure DevOps services we've talked about in the past uh, on the web, you know, on the show. Uh, but this is actually it is that, but it's also more. Uh, it is a new version of TFS. So they've renamed TFS, which is the Team Foundation Server, to the DevOps Server. 
they've added all of those great features we talked about from Azure, the Azure boards, repos, pipelines, test plans, and artifacts. And they've also done a bunch of tight integration with GitHub Enterprise. Uh, and this can be leveraged on-premise or in Azure. Uh, and you can also leverage Azure Pass services to handle the backend database. So overall, super nice uh, upgrade to TFS for those of you in the Microsoft family of products. Uh, and if you are on TFS today, maybe take a look at moving to DevOps server. I've never used TFS, but I'm very interested in taking a look at this because I think the um, the Alation products kind of misses out a little bit on requirements management. And I know TFS uh, and now you know um, DevOps Server has a module built in for requirements tracking, which I think were really useful in some of our industries. That's yeah. very true. Yeah, the. Um... You know, I, I definitely it would be nice to be able to combine more and more of you know Jenkins and Jira and GitHub into a single p tool. Um, but you know, TFS has been around a long time, and that's been their pitch. And you know, while it's very popular in Microsoft shops, it hasn't really branched out. But it is Git compatible. It, it's supported Git for several versions now. Um, it has quite a few capabilities in that space. Peter apparently doesn't use TFS either. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Haven't, haven't and the problem of having a podcast with people who are mostly on the Java side of the house is that you don't always have the Windows yeah. uh, <laughs> exposure. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, anyways, if you are using TFS and you're listening to the show, uh, check out the new DevOps server. I think it's uh, a great upgrade and uh, something that you might get a lot of value out of. All right. This is the big story of the week. Um, so Amazon announced what they're calling the open distro for Elasticsearch. Um, this is, they're calling, they don't call it a fork, but by every definition of what I know a fork is, this is a fork. Uh, they see it as a value-added distribution for Elasticsearch uh, brought to you by Amazon and Netflix and Expedia. Uh, they will still be providing upstream code to core Elasticsearch and core Kibana, uh, but it has several advantages, uh, which is, includes the security plugin to support node-to-node -node encryption, uh, supports up to five types of different auth, uh, and role-based access controls and audit and logging. Uh, event monitoring alerting features to allow notifications based on certain event thresholds. A new deep performance anal analytics API, so you can look at tools. You can use tools like PerfTop uh, to look at your Elasticsearch data. And then, of course, SQL support to allow you to query your ES cluster with SQL statements. Uh, these four features are all <laughs> paid-for services from Elasticsearch directly. Uh, and so this has rifled the open source community a little bit in the last couple of days, and Twitter has exploded about this topic. Um, in addition to this particular release by Jeff, uh, Jeff Barr, Adrian Cockroft also published a blog on keeping open source open, which is directly related to this. Uh, and he makes several arguments about um, you know, their stance on how they see open source and what their justifications are for going down this path with Elasticsearch. I didn't like Jeff Barr's blog post very much. Um, the, the Adrian's um, blog was really interesting and I think kind of sold it for me. And there have been some really fantastic discussions over the past couple of days about this. And um, I'm all for it. I really am. I think any uh, anyone who withholds basic functionality like encryption in transit and authentication for a service which is intended to run either on the internet, in a cloud, or any kind of network service that doesn't support those those things, and I mean that really sucks. They they should have pushed those things into the into the free version, and I mean they they kind of had it coming. It's open source, and anyone has the right to to take a copy of that as long as they adhere to the license and do what they like with it. That's all Amazon have done, um, and um, yeah, I'm I'm happy they did it. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I would say like from, you know, looking at how certain open source um, kind of companies take these these products and they make them enterprise ready, but then who's to say that the startup or the nonprofit or something like that, the, the small shop that wants to use some of these things, they need these features too. So it's not always fair when you look at like, okay, well, Elastic's going to put all these great security features in their paid enterprise version, but then everybody else misses out. Like who's to say that, you know, everyone should have access to that or no one should have access to that. I mean, I think open source, you know, keep with the definition of that for your whole product. And I think this is just going to benefit everyone. Yeah. And to say that it's not a fork is, is kind of interesting. They don't, I, I believe AWS and Netflix when they say that they don't intend this to be a, a fork and they'll continue to push code back to the origin. However, I don't think Elasticsearch are going to accept the pull requests for features which are in their paid suite. I mean, I can't believe that, that in the how many years it's been that Elasticsearch has existed, nobody has suggested encryption in transit or authentication for the web gateway. Surely somebody's built that before and it's been declined. Well, I don't know. I so you know that they're going to provide this particular code back to them as open source because this is this would all this is all be code that's in XPack. But I think that they're saying is, you know, if we're making improvements to Elasticsearch to make our stuff work better, we're still going to provide that back upstream um, to, to the project. Everything in this list, the plugins for the encryption and everything else, all this is going to go back into the open source repo, and they will offer it up to Elasticsearch in a pull request, sure. which clearly clearly won't be accepted. Yeah, because why would they do that? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, I have a very, you know, I buy a lot of software at my, my day job. And, you know, when I talk to these open source vendors and they're like, you know, buy the enterprise product because that's how you get, you know, multi-region availability. It's such an anti-pattern. And, you know, while I wish Amazon had just worked with Elasticsearch directly to come up with a way to make XPack more available in the marketplace, um, I think Amazon has sort of the same opinion that I do, which is, Security should be a basic tenant of any software application. Encryption at rest should be a basic tenant. Things like the SQL support, maybe the Deep Analytics API, those are maybe things that I don't need in my Elasticsearch cluster. And so maybe those are things that I'd be willing to pay more for in the marketplace. But Amazon's definitely made a bold statement here and said, look, this is this is what we believe, that open source is open. And that we're going to put this out there. And if you want to use it, you can. And if you don't want to use it, that's fine too. And that's, and if you look at the, really the tenets of open source, that's what the whole model is. That's why we allow forking. That's why we allow team people to do pull requests. Or if they're not happy with it, you do your own project and then you make that your own availability. I mean, MariaDB would not exist today if my SQL hadn't forked. <laughs> and if your argument is, well, you know, Maria forking screwed my SQL, uh-huh. you know, that's, that's a bad argument to make. So, you kind of have to, in the open source world, you sort of have to accept that there's going to be people who potentially are threatening your model. But if you're providing good service, you're providing good quality at good value, I think you went out. But if you don't, then someone like Amazon or some other company or even, hell, you know, Jonathan and you and I, could, we all could write this ourselves too and make it public so, an open source and no one would be mad at us. People are really mad because it's Amazon doing it and they see it as Amazon being a bully. And I just, I, I don't agree with that stance. Um, but, you know, and, and Elastico um, responded this morning, actually, as well. Um, and, you know, well, it's a very lovely written thing. It basically comes down to we're going to see how it goes and we think our solution's better and you're going to go with us anyways. And, you know, they definitely poked Amazon a few times and said, you know, they're pushing them in a direction they're not happy about. But at the end of the day, Elastic like, is open source. You do the thing. If you like it, take that. If not, come back to us. We, we have a better product. We love our product. We love our service. And we don't think Amazon's going to be a good shepherd. 
Do you remember shareware from the nineties? <laughs> oh yes, two thousand. Along with my uh, Amazon subscription, you know, my AOL discs and exactly. you know, those CDs, I got stuck to the back of you know gaming magazines with all that shareware on it. Yeah, I, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if Elasticsearch offered X Pack, or, or let's let's not say X Pack, if if Elasticsearch offered these basic features, which we think should be included in MVP for security um, for free. But said, "Hey, would you please donate if you use this in um, in the corporate world? Would people do it? Because really, that's that's all they're asking for." Now, if you want XPAC, you have to go get a salesperson from Elasticsearch. You have to have a you negotiate on the price, and they charge you a, a you know ridiculous amount of money. And that license is only a year license, and then you have to renew it. Um, what you're saying is more of a donation model where, hey, I'm going to give you maybe a gift of $10,000 or $20,000 or a tip, and you're going to give me this code, and I'm going to commit back and contribute back to you. That's a little bit different. Yeah, maybe. You know, for people who are afraid Amazon's not going to be a good shepherd with it, then they, when Amazon decides to not be a good shepherd, they could fork that. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting, too, because in one breath, everyone was saying how happy they were Amazon was doing Coretto because of the evil, mad, bad Oracle company. And then, you know, they do the same thing to Elasticsearch, basically, and now they're the enemy. It's it's a little bit of, you know, calling the kettle black. We all like to root for the underdog. Yeah, uh, but, but, but Java was at risk of, Java 8 was at risk of being taken away completely and support was going to disappear. And I understand why they would want to protect something like that because there are so many customers that use that on their platform. I mean, Amazon's Elasticsearch offering is it's kind of crappy. It was stuck on an ancient version for such a long time. They don't support XPack for whatever reason. But they did in the last in the last few versions um, of Elasticsearch. Though they they you know they're up to the latest version of Elasticsearch or not the latest, but very close. They do now integrate um, you know basically this authorization authorization plugin that they have in the open source. They now have in the managed services and some of these other items. I would expect to see now appear in the Elasticsearch service as well in the future. Because, you know, this is the same thing as them releasing the container runtime that they built um, as open source, right? They they build a container runtime, they put it out there, they said, you know, we're going to maintain this for our own purposes anyways, because that's what we're, it's going to power our container platform. You can contribute to that or not, but the code's here. And then they're basically now saying, this is the code that's going to drive the Elasticsearch service on AWS. We're making that code available to anybody, and you can either contribute to it or not, but we're going to continue to maintain it because we need it for our service. You know, I think this was going to happen sooner or later in open source. People always wondered how can this be a sustainable model, and now we're now we've come to this um, this point in time where something's going to have to change for sure. And I hope it doesn't put a bunch of people out of business. I hope it doesn't stifle innovation, but I, I do hope it gives us better products to work with as customers. Well, and I want better enterprise options, right? Like I, I'm happy to pay for these products. I just want you to make what I'm paying for valuable. And I just, auth and DR and HA and all those things, like those are not the things I want to pay for. I want to pay for, you know, your accelerators to make me integrating Elasticsearch better, right? Like they produced, a, they have a new product around site searching, like similar to a Google search appliance, right? That is not a thing that I would typically need. But if I have that use case, I'm happy to pay you for that use case because you're solving a problem that I need to solve in an enterprise. And I'm willing to pay you lots of money for that. I'm not willing to pay you for this basic components of open source, which technically is, you know, Lucene. <laughs> you guys did a ton of additional features to back, you know, 11 years ago. But your your product is built on open source tool. So I just, I don't know. It's a weird, weird thing. And I, I don't think Amazon's the bad guy here. I don't think Elasticsearch the victim completely here. I think it's a bit of both. Again, I would still like to see Amazon support 
things like use, buying XPack through Marketplace and being able to use that with their managed Elasticsearch cluster. And maybe they tried to do that and Elasticsearch didn't want to play ball. Maybe not. I don't know. But um, I, I definitely think, you know, there's some things that they need to do around the Marketplace to make open source viable. But Amazon's also, you know, very clearly, this is a this is a complaint from customers. I'm pretty sure I'm one of the customers who complained about this exact issue that I don't have ability to do auth in Elasticsearch from them on the managed services platform. And they heard my feedback. And this is their answer to that. It really is two distinct things. There's the there's the additional features which they're building, which compete with XPack. And then there's the issue of the open source code, but which is not actually open to use as, you know, in the enterprise world. And so I, I understand why they fought the repo and they've removed the pieces of code which don't belong there. They've removed the code for, for the proprietary features that you have to pay for. And that makes total sense to me. They should always have been kept in a separate repository. Agreed. All right, moving on. Uh, the other bit of news that was a bit of a shocker uh, yesterday morning was uh, F5 has announced the acquisition of Nginx uh, for $670 million. They are claiming this is a strategic acquisition. Uh, together, F5 and Nginx will enable multi-cloud application services across all environments. Um, they will keep Nginx as a standalone company. Uh, the CEO, Gus Robertson's and founders, Igor Syosov and Maxim Konovalov, and I messed both those up, I'm sure, <laughs> will continue to lead the company after the acquisition closes. F5 said the thriving open source community was one of the most attractive elements of this combination. And F5 recognized the trust that the user community has in Nginx. I mean, when I hear thriving open source community, I hear people doing work for free on my product. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, Nginx has suffered the same as as Elasticsearch has, to be fair, with our enterprise offering, uh, having some features which really should have belonged in the community version. And that even now, Nginx kind of sucks with, with logging. It, it's, it's really not a, it's not a great product. Um, but when compared with what F5 had to offer, sure, it's fantastic. The, the thing I don't understand about this, that some of the language they use in the, in the press releases, it's kind of bizarre. You know, like we bridge the divide between NetOps and DevOps. What does that even mean? Like, isn't DevOps has nothing to do with the technology you choose to to run your reverse proxies or web servers? I mean, I don't know. Is that is that I'm sort of admitting that you know, if you want to do infrastructure as code with uh, you know Ninja templates on Python, that F5 doesn't really support that very well, but Nginx does, and so they're going to take that lessons learned how to do configuration in a file. Like, it is a weird. It was a weird statement in the press release. Yeah, I guess it's old world versus new world. I mean, if you got to buy a twenty thousand dollar appliance. Uh, and deploy it and configure it using some crummy old APIs, then uh, then sure. Has anyone else tried to automate stuff with Nginx's API and F5's API? Nginx is terrible. I, I really dislike the Nginx configuration files. And yes, there's been, we've, we've got a cool tool lined up for the Nginx config builder, but it really sucks. And if you try and get JSON logs out from Nginx into like CloudWatch logs or, or even Elasticsearch, it's terrible. I mean, you have to really like kludge the whole thing together with with, with uh, literally like faking the JSON with it with the braces and the escaping the, the backslashes, and it's it's a nightmare. They've they've withheld some really crucial features from Nginx that made it a fantastic product. So I, I guess all in all, what Nginx has to offer and what F5 have to offer, they're a, they're a perfect team. I tell you, I had a way easier time with Nginx than I did with F5 when automating some stuff around trying to get a. Uh doing a session draining and auto scaling. I mean, I, I think it's kind of interesting because one of the complaints I have about the F5 appliances that you can buy in Amazon Marketplace or Azure Marketplace um, is the throughput is garbage. 
Like they just don't scale. They're not, they're not horizontally scalable. They just don't work. And so if F5 were able to take the Nginx technology and make a more scalable cloud solution that supports iRules and some of the F5 nomenclatures that are there, maybe that's interesting. And I am sort of intrigued to see if something happens like that around this space because you know, F5's power is its ASIC. And the more we move towards cloud, the less of an ASIC-driven world we're in, except for now you can do, you know, the the virtual ASICs. But, you know, it's still, you don't get that speed of, you know, offboarding TLS encryption and, and offboarding all this other stuff to specialize ASIC processors. So the need to be able to do this in software becomes much more important. And it's very clear, you know, because F5 virtual appliance, F5 has been available for years now that they're struggling to scale that unit to anything that is what a customer wants or needs in the cloud. Um, so I, it is sort of interesting from that perspective, um, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, up until now, I think their cloud strategy has been people who want to migrate to the cloud and are dependent on our features and invested in our technology. The easiest path for them is to spin up a virtual appliance in the cloud, even though they're sacrificing, um, you know, ease of uh, redundancy, reliability, speed, et cetera. The, there's no other choice. And I think that people are starting to look at that as a transformation item, even a day zero item. We're not going to depend on F5. If we're going to the cloud, let's get off of it and move to an open source uh, technology there, even if that means moving some of that logic into our application, if we don't have it in the open source technology. And so, yeah, I, mean, I, I think it's smart. I think it's a smart move for them to get just just jump in with both feet grab one of the technologies and figure it out later. There's been a lot of F5 stuff written in, in TCL, Tickle. And um, I don't believe Nginx has a Tickle plugin, but it has a, a Lua plugin. We could fairly easily move all those all those little scripts that people have written over the years to Nginx. Um, I guess, I mean, even if you deploy an F5 appliance in the cloud, you're still limited by, I mean, it's, you're still, unless you're spending $40 an hour on a, on a massive instance, you're still not going to get the performance of a dedicated piece of hardware. And then it's expensive. The license fee is expensive, and to scale it horizontally would be just totally prohibitive in cost. I mean, maybe Nginx is is really their path forward. I think this this acquisition is an admission that their business was was stunted, and they they needed to look for growth. Yeah, I was going to mention like I I've been in a couple um, enterprises in the past where you do have the traditional old guard that you know you're moving to AWS, but you know, we need the F5 appliance in the cloud, and then you try and manage it in a similar way to how you're deploying everything else, and it just, it doesn't work. So if nothing else, this new partnership that hopefully will come out of this is going to be benefits for um, performance, for integration, things like that between Nginx, F5, and then all the downstream services. Um, so if nothing else, at least make it, you know, let's hope this makes it easier to interact with things like F5 in enterprises where maybe you don't have a choice or it's hard to kind of move without taking a step to F5 before you move to something else. In other news, Amazon releases Open Distro for Nginx with all of the enterprise of features. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's coming one of these days. Yeah, I was wondering yeah. about that. I was like, okay, is this going to be the Amazon's play for every... Um... You know, every company that's basically trying to do this licensing garbage to them, like, okay, well, if you're going to do that, we're just going to turn around and release this as open source. <laughs> I, well, I believe <laughs> that would be interesting. Nginx partnered with Amazon a few years ago to, to build something, and I, I had rumors that the ALB was based on 
nginx code oh cool well i mean i, I always assumed it was either nginx or HA proxy and the but you know but maybe they built something custom now but i always kind of assumed it was something based on open source at some point yeah speaking of aws when i think of cloud i think of foghorn consulting foghorn has been around since 2008 they've been on the forefront of cloud enablement and have delivered powerful transformations for hundreds of clients from startups to fortune 500 including highly regulated industries they were early visionaries and practitioners of using code to automate infrastructure and operations to drive up cloud efficiencies while driving down costs. Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, AWS, Asia, and GCP. Go to fogops.io slash thecloudpod to learn more about their FogOps services and sign up for a free, well-architected framework review. Let's turn it over to you, Peter, for the lightning round. All right, so uh, for a quick rehash for Matt, we're going to go through a bunch of items that aren't special enough to for us to talk about for a long time, but um, feel free uh, on each one to give us a little one-liner on what you think of it, and the best one-liner will get the victory. So you are, you are uh, playing on behalf of the guest spot, current like ranking... Justin's got three wins. Jonathan's got two. Uh, and our guest has two. I have one, which is, I don't even know if I earned that one. But, uh, okay. If I look back on the tape, I do, I do question that one still, but it's okay. Come on. <laughs> I'm, I'm always using the up the list. You can't be the judge. Give me the judge and a competitor. I thought he was going to give it to himself last week. I thought he was giving it to himself last week, too. I think we distracted him. What did I say? I don't remember what you said, but I, I, I think I distracted you with something else, and then you you couldn't remember what funny thing you said earlier. And you know, especially when I listened back to it, I was like, I think Peter won this one. But hey, it's already been declared for me. <laughs> can I uh, can I give myself this one ahead of time for that Nginx comment? I thought that was yeah, funny. that was good. That was pretty <laughs> that good. That was yeah. good. <laughs> All right, here we go. Lightning round. Um, AWS Performance Insights is now GA for SQL Server. You know, they've gone the Oracle pricing model on this. It's price per vCPU. Well, I mean, I, I can tell you the insights you need on SQL Server. It's too slow and move to Aurora. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I mean, who, who, uh, I don't know who really the audience for this is. It's so expensive to run SQL Server and RDS. It almost is a joke when you bring it up to people. I know people. I, know, yeah. I, I, yeah. I can say that I am one of those people. <laughs> so. Okay. Uh, AWS SSM on-premise now handles large hybrid environments, previously limited to less than a thousand instances. Thanks, Amazon, for reminding me of the dumb limitation you had six months ago when you announced this. I love the pricing model. I can't imagine if you're paying for anything above a thousand instances, it's really more of an intelligence test than, <laughs> than a pricing test. This should, this is easy to, to game. This is pretty easy to game if you read the Details. Yep. <laughs> All right. AWS Credo 11 is now available as a release candidate. So they said April. Like, didn't we remember when they announced AWS Credo 8? They said, you know, Credo 11 coming in preview in April. And then they announced it early. And now they have a release candidate. Like, we need to talk to them about what they mean by April. I wish the features I cared about would be early. Wait, wait, what features do you care about in Credo 11? Oh, no. Services I care about. I wish services I cared about would be this early. Oh yeah, like you know, you. I agree. Everything else takes forever. Yeah, you talk to a product manager, and they're like, "Yeah, we're working on that." And I'm like, "Oh, great. When will you have it?" Oh, you know, sometime in the next twelve to never. (laughs) Before. 
<laughs> which yeah <laughs> aws step function adds tag based permissions i hate this i hate them for this for years i've been preaching not to use tags for security and now they are telling people to use tags for security. I remember that was an anti-pattern for a long time, especially when they were limited to like 10 tags for EC2. Um, but I thought that was part of when they like, increased the tag limit. They're saying, you know, we're seeing people use tagging for all these things. And especially tagging in IAM in particular could be useful for permission setting. Informational is fine. The thing is, a tag is its own object. A ta- it's, not, it's not like an EC2 tag or a, a step function tag or something else. A tag is a tag. It's an actual thing. And if you've got permission to create a tag or delete a tag, you've got permission to create or delete any tag on anything. So, I mean, I guess in the world where we automate everything and Terraform or CloudFormation does the deployments for us and nobody has access to go and tweak things manually, this is fine. It's a cheap way of doing some some kind of resource grouping. But people don't live in that world. At least most people don't live in that world. And as soon as you give people access to, to modify tags, I mean, like changing the name of something is changing the tag. So you give people to change the name of something, like an EC2 instance, you're giving people the, the permission to change the permissions on these step functions. Yeah. The permission to change the permissions. Right. It's dangerous. It. And I'm like, why, why, I mean, we do use this, but why choose step functions as the next one? I can think of like 10 other things that are way more ingrained in the AWS ecosystem. Right. Uh, auto-scaling groups would be a good example. Right, exactly. Curses. Well, and I look forward to your future rants about future tag-based permission models that maybe this is the, maybe they chose f- steps. You're know, like, hey, you know, what service doesn't get used that often? Oh, you know, step functions. Let's try it there first. <laughs> right. But what a weird thing though, like step functions. So if, if you have two different parts of your organization that use step functions to trigger things, then, then we, we think tag is a great idea for this. Like, no. I mean, how many step functions do people have that they can't fit these things into normal IAM policies? I don't know. I mean, I, I, like I only my... know one person in the world who uses step functions, and I'm sure he loves this. <laughs> I mean, at least add it to Lambda first, right? Before the step function. I mean, come on. All right. There is a new AWS Direct Connect console. That way you can see how much money you're paying to talk to your outpost on-prem. I actually used this in the past week, the day they launched it, and it was so confusing. And I felt like it's basically the same thing, except they took away the ability for me to download an LOA right away. And now I have to wait. They also released an SNS console that I couldn't be bothered to put into the lightning round notes, uh, which I looked at and had the exact same thought. So I'm, <laughs> I'm glad the ReconNect is also following the same line as the new SNS console. Well, some people converge on a really nice-looking UI for everything that they have to offer. Amazon is going completely the opposite direction, and they have four or five different styles of competing UI, and all of them are just a nightmare to use. I'm envisioning the uh, the console in the Matrix right now. <laughs> Watching BGP rain down on my screen. From top you know to that bottom. was a sushi recipe or something. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Starbucks launches its latest drink, the Cloud Macchiato. <laughs> I can't wait to try it, but I can't find the API documentation. Oh, that's good. Yeah, no Terraform support yet either. <laughs> and we know, cl- we know CloudFormation is at least a year away. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to walk in there. I'm going to ask yeah. for the free tier. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. That was a big laugh. Oh, no. Uh, you could have muted yourself before you laughed, so then we wouldn't have known. <laughs> I know. Then I didn't have given away that. I thought that was funny. Free tier is so much better than APIs. Okay. Um, 
AWS Code Commit now supports VPC endpoints. Good. Now for the other 160 services. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait till the day that we can stop talking about these in Lightning. Announcing rounds. these. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Great. You finally did a thing you should have already done. Great. Bravo. AWS Amplify Console adds support for instance CDN cache invalidation and Delta deployments. Well, I guess it's better than updating it in CloudFront for 45 minutes. You know, you're reading typos verbatim from my notes. <laughs> What's that movie with the guy who just, who, who they, they trolled him by putting stuff like question marks and things and he's, uh... yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the thing yeah. about this is, is that if, if he did his job, he would actually put these headlines in, but he never does it. And I just assume he's not going to. And so I do them and I just, I'm literally blowing through these notes in like an hour. And yeah, there's typos everywhere. I like fix them as we're going through, but yeah, so that's pretty awesome. Instant, instant CDN cache invalidation. <laughs> oh, now we know. Now we know. going to oh. read these things word for word. I'm going to start putting. putting oh yes, we're totally trolling Peter. Trolling, trolling <laughs> Peter now. This will this will teach him not to do the homework. <laughs> instant CDN cache invalidation. That makes so much it more makes sense. Makes so much more sense. <laughs> Trust Amazon to innovate, like not uploading up files that don't need to be uploaded when you do a deployment. I mean, that's uh, visionary. I'm still reeling. Reeling from my mistake. Okay, uh, AWS ECS introduces enhanced container dependency management. Finally. This is how you identify you have dependencies on Kubernetes and moving to Kubernetes as fast as possible. Right. Just what I wanted. Tightly coupled containers. This is so great. <laughs> AWS announces the Amazon Linux 2 pre-upgrade. This is like an, an onion piece. It's like... Get used to the bugs before they're real. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know anyone who would think about using this. They need to have an Amazon Linux to CentOS uh, or something like that. Amazon Linux and Amazon Linux 2, this different? I mean, I know they're System D versus the other one that I never remember the name of. Uh, but like, do I really need this assistant? Like, If you're breaking this much backwards compatibility, I'm not sure I want to use Amazon Linux ever. Oh, no, they're totally different. That's totally different. Loads of Completely things will break. Different. But but to be fair, System D has been around for a very long time. And if you're only just starting to use System D, then yeah. um, you know, you you've missed the There's boat. bigger problems. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I just want to know is like seriously, is there a Amazon Linux to upgrade assistant? And this we use this before we no. can use that? No, it's a pretty no, upgrade that's assistant. A great question. <laughs> that's that's good. Like pre gaming? Like <laughs> and then I go to a bar and drink more, kind of like that. There is no upgrade. There's no upgrade path between them, so it's kind of it's kind of funny that they've got the pre-upgrade assistant. Yeah, the pre. -upgrade. There is no upgrade. Um, license manager now supports new CPU-based licensing and software licensing vendors. This feature built entirely for Oracle. Yes, hundred percent. It'll be ironic if the tool increases Oracle's revenue. You know, I just I just don't think there are enough. Press releases for License Manager. It's the first I've heard of it. Speaking of uh, news releases well, for License Manager, License Manager now also supports on-premise servers and tracking. Again, couldn't have done this on the same day. Now, now in the defense of this one, unlike last week's, this one of these was released on February 28th, and one was released on the 1st of or sometime in March, I think. <laughs> if I if I follow the nomenclature of this URL linking properly. Yeah. Or at least it was supposed to have been released in February, because technically we're only on the last seven days of news. So, so something definitely happened on this particular license. Now put them together. I like they split it over two days, though, because normally when Amazon posts their blogs, they, they post about 50 in one go. And they all scroll past in the chat room where we have the RSS feed. And I think, yep, 
I'm not going to kick on those. Yeah, that's, that normally happens right after I, I lock the show topics for the week. That's typically when I get like seven of them, and then I have to look at them and say, yeah, none of these are worthy. And I, I it basically Game of Thrones them. Like, you're not worthy. You are. Like, I did notice as you uh, as you look at these, they were both posted on March 8th, 2019, in inside of the post. So they're doing it same day, releases as many. Mm-hmm. It's a volume game. Well, that's how you keep your your name in the news, I guess. Is right. You just dump right. as many press releases as you can. I mean, exactly. Not all. I mean, a lot of these are coming from the What's New RSS feed, which is not, you know, it's not like the Jeff Barr treatment, but uh, they, you know, they are definitely things they're announcing, and they do it in large volumes. Last one of the round: Azure real-time serverless applications now support Signal R service bindings. Wow! So Azure have just invented WebSockets. I just I just think about the acronyms: real-time serverless RTS. Plus signal R, so SR, like it just one area where the the hyperscalers do compete is on how much their names suck. Oh, I'm starting to think Azure is taking the crown on that one. I, I thought I used to think, you know, Corey Quinn, you know, he's he's always being, giving Amazon such a bad time on that. That I thought that no one could be worse. And then we started this podcast, and now I'm exposed to both Google's naming and Azure's naming, and and Azure's is by far the worst like the whole yeah. concept of blob storage premium as a naming totally is awful premium <laughs> blob storage oh premium but you know there's also the remember the data box blob disk thing like what 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 is that i think they have a dice with different words on this let's roll, roll the dice a few times <laughs> i'm starting the 802.11c standard we're going to do cloud oh, like service naming standard. oh yeah that'd be nice all right speaking of names that's the end of our uh Lightning round. I guess I got. I didn't realize one. how many we had, but it seemed like it went on forever. Yeah. But, or it just got awkward in the middle there because of that instance versus instant mistake. That's right. I can I can cut out all the ones where I didn't have a good comment. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do Never. enjoy what you're editing of this because like sometimes I'm like I'm pretty sure someone said a comment there that was not appropriate and like you yeah you edited it out or nope nope you didn't. Yeah, yeah. I, I save all those. I save nope. all those for uh... blackmail later. All right, Peter. Who who won the uh, lightning round today? I really wanted to win, but I laughed too hard at um, at free tier for yeah, the that was good. Player. That was good. That yeah. was good. Yeah, I, I I fully concede to Jonathan this this time around. Excellent. You got it, Thank Jonathan. You. For you, the listeners of the Cloud Pod Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook downloaded with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash the cloud pod. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash thecloudpod for your free audiobook. All right. Well, let's move on to cool tools with Jonathan. Well, this week we have Matt to talk about CloudPing. Cool. So uh, this is a tool I first created, I think it was back in 2016 was when it initially launched. Uh, The... The goal or the motive behind this was I was doing a lot of projects at the time when I was doing consulting and people would always ask you questions about like picking two instances uh, or two regions um, in the world that AWS had uh, data centers in, you know, what's the latency like between these? And you would always spin up a couple instances, maybe do a VPC peer um, after they made that available, um, look at that, uh, get a general idea, but there was no data collection around this or visualization or anything like that. So I just kind of was like, hey, Lambda's cool, serverless is cool, let's figure out a way to put all this stuff together. So I kind of used it as like a learning opportunity. 
but also trying to solve a problem. Um, and so what I came up with was this cloud ping tool, which essentially um, it's just a bunch of Lambda functions, one deployed in each region. Um, it reaches out to a public endpoint in all the other regions, and it just stores the latency information um, in DynamoDB. And that's really as far as it goes. Um, I'm working on some improvements. I get a lot of requests for kind of graphing and visualization and historical data. So trying to work on some of that stuff now um, as I'm trying to figure out JavaScript, which I'm not a big fan of, um, but taking some of that further and kind of getting more information out there. But really its foundational purpose was to be super simple and just provide like some data on latency between AWS regions. It's really cool. When we started talking about this last week before the show, I kind of wondered what was the, what was the motivation with 100 milliseconds versus you know for, for the green and 100 to 180 for the yellow. Is was there a particular um, service or database which you had in mind which doesn't perform well more than 100 or there, who were the yeah like who were the who were the people trying to do things between region that that you're trying to dissuade? So the that's a, that's a funny question actually because so picking the uh, the different colors and the the ranges that I used was extremely arbitrary. Um, there is no, uh, there was no kind of rhyme or reason to that. And I tried to um, do some research on like what what are standard latencies that are acceptable in these types of situations. And there wasn't really any specific kind of source for that. But as I started looking at the data, this was kind of um, you know, there was a breaking point almost between like different continents around 100. Um, and then obviously when you start moving to the next continent over, it looked like it was in between like 100 and 200, maybe a little bit more. And then as you were going between like Australia and the U.S. or, um, you know, Asia Pacific and some of the uh, like Brazil that's huge, and so that's kind of where they came from, but it was really an arbitrary decision. I wish I could say that this was super scientific and how I thought of this, but it totally was not. It makes sense for me. I, there's two games that I played in my past that were latency sensitive. One was online racing, and then the other was um, uh, first-person shooters. And anything over 200 milliseconds is death, is unplayable. Right. Or you're going right. to lose every time. Um, anything under 100 milliseconds was usually pretty golden. Maybe you could, maybe so. like I know you're not want you don't want feature requests from me, but uh, no, fine, please. <laughs> maybe maybe you have like either that big a box that I could fill in based on my app, or maybe you have like some preselected like this is for database replication, or this is for gaming, like Peter's example. Um, maybe you had some idea. you had like some like t-shirt sizing kind of based around that. That way you can kind of you know tie a little bit more to the use case because like a database. That's synchronous versus database is asynchronous. I have a different concern about latency than I do otherwise. And you know, if you have those considerations in, in mind, that would be interesting. So you're, you mentioned the visualization, and that was actually one of the comments that I had. I said it would be kind of cool to see this over time and historically. And so it's cool that you're working on that. Um, you mentioned this is in Lambda. So what what does the architecture kind of look like for this in the back end? Is it is it just you know basically a single Lambda that fires up in the region, or do you use VPC peering? Like, what does it look like in the back end? So the the current version is super simple. Um, for uh, its current architecture, it's literally one Lambda function in each region. Um, I have a DynamoDB table in Ohio that contains all the different regions that I want to go through and scan. Um, 
there's a couple adjustments to make when AWS releases a new region. Um, so I don't like to scan everything based on the describe uh, regions API. So basically, Lambda function every six hours in every region goes through, pulls the region list from DynamoDB, um, grabs a uh, ping time to the DynamoDB endpoint, the public endpoint um, in all the other regions, and then stores that back in a DynamoDB database in Ohio. Um, at the very beginning of this, there were a bunch of regions that still didn't even have Lambda. So there were, uh, this kind of started out as a hybrid between starting up an EC2 instance on a schedule in those other regions with a Lambda function in Ohio. So kind of trigger those to start and then doing the exact same Python script in the background and then shutting them down. And then as Lambda came to all the other regions, I put that um, basically across the board. Um, my, my next version, in addition to visualization, um, is I want to start looking at VPC peering. Um, so getting a peer set up between all the different regions, maybe even looking at what's the difference between VPC peering and transit gateway. Um, so you can kind of look at latencies through these different services. So it's not only public endpoints, but also going through the AWS network um, a little bit more and kind of getting some numbers with those. So trying to balance too complex with being able to show all this data, but also giving what people are asking for, because I get a lot of different requests for you know, VPC peering, transit gateway, visualization, um, different services besides DynamoDB, stuff like that. So that's kind of where we are right now. And how much does it cost to run? Uh, I think it's about $15 a month total. Um, and that was, that was um, I haven't looked in a while. There was a point where I did have a couple EC2 instances that were still running in the background, and that was part of that. So once I've switched over to all Lambda, I honestly haven't looked at that in probably a year, but I imagine it's significantly less than that. That's awesome, man. If I tried to do this in the 90s uh, with data centers, we would have had to get this coming. <laughs> <in front of laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. DynamoDB is the back end of this. Um, you know, you were mentioning JavaScript for the visualization layer, but maybe you could just use QuickSight for that and then just plug in QuickSight into your app as yeah, an that's embedded. A great point. That's a great idea. I think a map would be really, a globe would be really cool. You can use the, the Google uh, Maps API to, to render a, uh, a globe on the screen. Again. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. You know, those travel maps where you have the lines across and you can kind of yeah. see... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you could even like make it like a, like a like a heat map where you kind of you scroll the world around to where you are, and then you can see kind of rings of color out to the data centers. Um, yeah, no, I like that. Not you're not going to use Flot. No, I've gone through about ten of those, and all I I hate JavaScript. I'm just going to say that it's just I can't stand <laughs> it. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I I really appreciate this. This is really awesome, and you know, I can definitely, you know, I can see some conversations we have with you know architects or you know people concerned about latency and be like hey just look at this website you can get a good idea so i i look forward to your guys' enhancements let us know when you do the enhancements and you know, it will have you back on to tell us all about your next release or we'll at least plug it again uh in the podcast so yeah awesome yeah. i just well, start it and i'm going to use it for my customers cool. too well thank you very much for uh, joining us this week uh how do people follow you on the interwebs if they want to you know reach out give you an idea for this this tool of yours or just say hi or thank you how would they reach out to you and, and where can they find your your content sure so uh 
Twitter is MDA590. Um, that's generally the handle I have across the, the interwebs. And then um, the proud new owner of ma.dev as well. So you can look me up there and that's my website. Awesome. Excellent. Well, thank you again uh, and have a great night, you guys. Cool. Thanks for having Thanks. me. See you Good guys. Night. Good night.